This is episode 298 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to a library of bonus Shakespeare history content when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife. If you'd like to try out some of the history you'll learn about here on our show with games, recipes, and crafts straight from the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. Experience Shakespeare is the name of our membership platform here on the show, offering digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Learn more at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Robin Ritchie of the Tewkesbury Mustard Company. And we make Tewkesbury Mustard in the way that William Shakespeare would be very familiar. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. the entertainments at Kenilworth in 1575 and Harrowfield later in 1602, those entertainments cost their hosts more than the households normally spent in an entire year. So can you imagine your year's budget spent on one grand party that took, you know, several days? Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. For Shakespeare's lifetime, the concept of welcoming hospitality was considered a uniquely English virtue. We see this opinion reflected in the play As You Like It when Shakespeare's character Corin suggests that doing deeds of hospitality was one way to get to heaven. Nowhere was hospitality reflected more clearly or extended more often than at country house estates. Now, before you think of a small cottage in the countryside, when I say it was a country house estate, an example of a famous one is Kenilworth Castle, where Queen Elizabeth was welcomed and entertained by Robert Dudley in 1575. In homes like this one, nobility were expected to keep the ground and the interior rooms in prime condition with supplies on hand to provide accommodation, meals, and entertainment for travelers as well as visiting dignitaries who visited as part of official negotiations for both local and even national politics. Here today to help us understand the world of country house estates and the sorts of entertainments that were offered there by the hosts is our guest and author of the award-winning book, The Elizabethan Country House Entertainment, Elizabeth Kolkovich. Elizabeth Kolkovich is an associate professor of English at The Ohio State University, who specializes in Renaissance drama and early modern women's writing. She's the author of the Elizabethan Country House Entertainment, Print, Performance, and Gender, along with essays in academic journals and collections. Her research has been supported by fellowships at the Huntington Library and the Folger Shakespeare Library. Find out more about Elizabeth and her work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, Cassidy. Thank you for having me today. 
So glad to be here. Excited to look at country house estates and entertainments that go with them. With elaborate entertaining spaces like Whitehall Palace, for example. She has this at her disposal, Queen Elizabeth does. And she has other locations like Kenilworth Castle or Sudley Castle. Why are they participating in the welcome and entertainment of the nobility of England instead of going you know, to Whitehall Palace to do these things? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, as I was writing my book, I thought a lot about why it was that Elizabeth went on progress so often. So by progress, I mean a journey outside of London that stopped in cities and country houses and universities. And most monarchs in early modern England did this. They went on progress. But for Elizabeth, her progresses and entertainments during them seem to be an especially big part of her reign. And there are several possible reasons why this might be, but I kept coming back to Elizabeth's gender. So when she came to the throne, England had never before been ruled by an unmarried female monarch. And I think that by going out among her people, she was able to navigate those circumstances pretty well. So I think that progresses and entertainments outside of London were important because they helped serve her desired persona. She represented herself as a loving monarch who went out to her people and walked among them. And so progress gave her the chance to seem accessible and be interactive. And just so I don't sound too sweet on Elizabeth, she could also monitor her subjects' obedience. So she could make sure that the people outside of London saw her and knew she was in charge, which I think was was probably especially important for a single woman. Why were performances considered an essential part of entertaining a guest at all? I don't think we have that in current homes, like when we have people over, even when we go to parties, we don't necessarily think of putting on a play as something we would do. So I wonder what kind of performances would have been used? I mean, we think of plays, but was there also music or anything else that was considered entertainment? Oh, yeah, there were lots of different kinds of performance. I really wish, by the way, that someone would put on plays when I visited their house. So maybe sometime that will happen to me. (laughs) I agree with you. Yes, let's start that back again, please. (laughs) Uh, That would be great. But, you know, when, when the queen visited a household, there would always be impressive food. So the host would try to impress her with the display of a feast and a banquet with elaborate desserts decorated, you know, figurines made out of sugar, for example. And I think there was almost always music, instrumental music, as well as singing. And then some entertainments included hunting, which was one of Elizabeth's favorite pastimes, acrobatics, fireworks, uh, dancing, and then, and then, yeah, plays too. So when plays were involved, they really didn't They didn't follow a a thorough plot the way we're thinking we're used to seeing a Shakespeare play, for example. They were instead at country houses. These entertainments were episodic, though they were mostly performed outdoors. And then the actors and the audience would walk together from place to place around the landscape and see different little skits. And sometimes actors would even jump out literally from behind the bush and greet Elizabeth and start delivering a speech. So it was a very interactive kind of performance. The actors would talk to the audience and sometimes the audience would talk back. These entertainments also tended to follow a three-part structure. So when Elizabeth first arrived, there would be a welcome address, you know, saying things like, I'm so glad you're here. The The whole house is transformed by your presence. Then there would be a central skit or maybe a selection of pageants that kind of went together as the middle main episode. And then when Elizabeth left, 
there would be a farewell speech, mostly about how they couldn't survive without her and they were so glad that she came. So sometimes this would happen over several days or it would all happen in the same day, depending on how long Elizabeth was there. The other thing I should say is that these kinds of performances became an important part of Elizabeth's progresses toward the end of her reign. So the earliest surviving record of a country house entertainment performed for Elizabeth comes from 1571, which was more than a decade into her reign. So I think that country house entertainments emerged, at least in part, in response to the Queen's own preferences. And more broadly, um, you asked, you know, why performances would be part of welcoming, you know, part of hospitality. And that's because a country house was meant to show the qualities of its owner. So if you provided good hospitality, which usually involved feeding and housing your guests, then it meant that the owners had good character. So you can imagine that if someone gave exceptional hospitality, like over-the-top entertainments for the queen, that would mean that the owners were also exceptional in terms of their wealth, status, or character. So basically, the more impressive the performance, the better the hosts. What are some examples of country house performances that we know of were used specifically maybe for political gain? I would say all of them. So that's one thing that I that I say in my book is that country house entertainments were always political negotiations, especially between the host family and the queen, although lots of other people were involved too. So they always merged the political and the personal. The host family would ask the queen for increased favor and power, or maybe maintained favor and power. And the host family would also give the queen political advice, whether she asked for it or not. Um, so three examples come to mind, and I'll run through them quickly. Uh, the first one, if you've ever heard of a country house performance, it's probably this one at Kenilworth Castle in 1575. Um, and this was hosted by Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, who was best known and is still best known for being Elizabeth's favorite and possibly rumored romantic interest. So I, I think my own reading of this entertainment at Kenilworth is that Leicester was trying to create a new public identity, not just as Elizabeth's favorite, but also as a military leader in his own right. So the entertainment is very much about how Leicester is prepared to lead some sort of military expedition. Now, this political gain was somewhat attained and somewhat not because Elizabeth eventually gave Lester a position like that in charge of an expedition to the Netherlands, but that didn't happen for another decade. So, you know, maybe successful and maybe not. There are two other entertainments I want to mention. They happened in the same progress in 1591. So the first one was hosted by William Cecil, Lord Burley, who was one of Elizabeth's, well, probably her very chief advisor. And his house uh, at a place he called Tybalt's in 1591, when she visited, he hosted an entertainment that asked specifically for two things. Can you please let me retire from active duty at court because I'm getting old? And can you please promote my son, Robert Cecil, who is very capable, to a top post at your court. So that was a very kind of personal plea. But at the same time, there was a larger underlying political message because the entertainment represented Robert as anti-Catholic and ready to find and destroy Catholic traitors. So the entertainment argued that Catholics were 
always going to be disloyal, and Elizabeth needed really strong Protestant advisors. Now, three months later, she visited Cowdery. This was the home of some known Catholics, Viscount and Lady Montague, and they argued the opposite, that Elizabeth's Catholics were actually loyal supporters of the crown, at least the one who lived in Sussex where they lived. And so Elizabeth should be lenient in her treatment toward Catholics. Now, it's difficult to tell who kind of won in that situation because Elizabeth did promote Robert Cecil, but it took a little while. And Elizabeth did not intervene in a particularly strong way with Catholics in Sussex. So maybe maybe they won there too. It's tantalizing there, all of the terminology that's so similar to the Capulets and the Montagues and Tybalt <laughs> yes. in, in Romeo and Juliet. I just, there's a rabbit trail of history there that we could chase, I'm sure. That's absolutely true. You know, I don't think I'd thought of Protestants and Catholics as a good parallel for Romeo and Juliet's feud or their family feud, but that's a really interesting one. I think we've handed somebody a really nice thesis statement to to write to write about. <laughs> yes. Now, Elizabeth I issued a proclamation in 1596, essentially admonishing England's nobility for not doing enough towards what she saw as their essential role in hospitality. Elizabeth, what did the queen define as essential hospitality? What was her expectation for the nobility and country house owners? Well, in terms of that proclamation, I think what essential hospitality meant was that noble families should be providing food and charity to the poor so that the poor won't riot, you know, so there wouldn't be some sort of big uprising. So I know that Elizabeth expected her country house owners as kind of minimum levels of hospitality to help keep order outside of London. But when Elizabeth came to visit, she expected more than than that minimum or essential hospitality. She expected all of the houses to be open to her because she owned all of England, after all, she believed. And she expected there to be sleeping quarters and food for everybody she brought with her. She expected to be entertained in some way, maybe not a play at every house, but some sort of nice leisure activity to uh, enjoy. I'll read you a little bit of a letter written by one of Elizabeth's top advisors. His name was Christopher Hatton, and he wrote to a potential host ahead of time and said, you know, the queen's coming to visit you. Here's what you need to keep in mind. You need to see everything well-ordered and your house kept sweet and clean to receive her highness whensoever she shall be pleased to see it. So in other words, whenever she comes, you better be ready. Up to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And she expected that. She expected flexibility. She needed her host to be able to improvise because she would announce her itinerary in advance and send some men ahead to help with the planning. But her plans changed all the time. And there were rumors, too, about Elizabeth being a difficult and demanding guest, which, you know, may be true. But it definitely was true that the stakes were so high that hosts would go to extraordinary lengths to try to please her. I wouldn't be surprised at all to find out that Elizabeth I was a little bit of a diva of her time. <laughs> I would, yes. and, I, and to know her history, I feel like she kind of earned that. You know, it's like she gets a pass. It's, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, one of my favorite stories, and not entirely sure it's true, but perhaps, is that somebody actually built a wall in their house overnight because Elizabeth the night before said it would be a good idea. Well, the house would look better if there was a wall here and they wanted it to be there before she left. So they built it overnight. 
Yeah, I'm, ge- I'm getting all the Mariah Carey vibes there. Uh, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that might be accurate. Entertaining at the highest level of government, as a matter of course, sounds outstandingly expensive, especially building walls in your house that weren't there before. And it sounds like it required a great deal of staff to accomplish. And I would just curious about what kind of cost was involved in these entertainments and where was the funding coming from to provide this hospitality, since obviously this wasn't something the country house estate was doing on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It was very expensive. and. So some people have said that part of why Elizabeth traveled outside of London is so that she didn't have to pay for her own entertainment. (laughs) She would make others pay. And there is a certain level of truth to that. But the Crown did pay for some of the expenses. So some of the money did come from from court to help pay for these things. And it was really a it takes a village kind of situation because a host family, once they found out that the Queen was coming, they would basically send feelers out to their whole network who can help, what can, what can you provide? So extended family and neighbors would often send food and supplies to help with the cost. But it was the host family who bore the brunt of the cost most often. Sometimes this involved household renovations, either because the hosts thought that they you know, needed their house to look extra amazing, or because occasionally Elizabeth would announce that she was visiting a smaller house And it wouldn't accommodate all the people she was going to bring. So the hosts would have to expand. Um, That happened a few times. The other thing I can mention to give you a sense of the the scale of this is that the entertainments at Kenilworth in 1575 and Harrowfield later in 1602, those entertainments cost their hosts more than the households normally spent in an entire year. So can you imagine your year's budget spent on one grand party that took, you know, several days. Pretty amazing. That that is astounding amount of money to to drop on what is essentially a party, but I suppose with all of the political entanglements wrapped up in it, there was some some amount of believing it was worth it. This outlay was was going to pay them back. Absolutely. I think it was an investment in their future. In her book, Elizabeth outlines the lives of several women who were in charge of running such country house estates, including Elizabeth Hobie Russell and Alice Edgerton at Harefield. Elizabeth, tell us a little bit more about these women and what did their work and responsibilities include? I'm so glad you're asking about these women because they were really a joy for me to study. So country house entertainments were performed in domestic spaces at these women's houses, But when the queen arrived, the space also became overtly political. So that really fascinating merging of the domestic and political gave women opportunities to plan, write, and perform drama. And I do have evidence of women who wrote these and women who performed in these. And they did all of this while carrying out the traditional roles of elite housewife, mother, daughter, those sort of roles. So women like Elizabeth Russell and Alice Edgerton supervised the entire event. So they would need to make sure that the meals were prepared appropriately and that there was enough food for everyone. Sleeping quarters were arranged, house was decorated, and probably the pageantry too. So I think they probably served in a kind of producer role or you know a supervisor of, of all of that. So in terms of how a woman might use country house entertainment, I think Elizabeth Russell is a great example. When she hosted the queen at Bissom Abbey in 1592, her two teenaged daughters performed speaking roles in the entertainment. 
And they argued through their pageant that educated, politically savvy young women like them made the best advisors for an aging virgin queen. And then Elizabeth, then Queen Elizabeth went to Sudley Castle about a month later. And there was another pageant there, another entertainment where their teenage daughter, Elizabeth Bridges, performed also a speaking role and had a similar message. And the queen must have approved of these messages because she invited all three of those women to be her maids of honor in the next few years. Very effective pageant they planned there. Well done, ladies. Now, one woman that entertained a queen at her house that's very closely connected to Shakespeare is Susanna Hall, Shakespeare's daughter. Now, she didn't entertain the Queen of England, but she did entertain Queen Henrietta Maria, wife of England's King Charles I, at New Place in 1643. Was this an example of Susanna performing the kind of hospitality duties we've been discussing? And does that indicate that she and her husband, John Hall, were of sufficient nobility as to be granted this visit from the Queen? I think this is such a great question. Uh, And I should say outright that I haven't studied this particular uh, moment, this entertainment in detail. I'm calling it an entertainment because I'm imagining it as various, various kinds of entertainments might happen here. But I haven't studied this in detail myself. But I I think you're right that we can assume Susanna must have had important responsibilities when she supervised this visit. So I think we can use the the kind of strategies that I used when I tried to figure out how women were involved in Elizabethan country house entertainments to think about how Susanna might have been involved in this one. So one thing that I would always do is think about what other people might have been there, what men in the family might have been involved. And for uh, Susanna's case, she was clearly the woman of New Place, which she had inherited from her dad. She was also widowed at this time. And she and her husband had only had one one child, a daughter, so she didn't have any sons. She did have a son-in-law by 1643, I think, and um, I believed he lived nearby. And so he could have been involved. But it does seem like Susanna would have been the primary host when, when the queen came to visit. The other thing that interests me a lot is that this visit happened at the beginning of the English Civil War. And so perhaps Henrietta Maria was there at Stratford because she wanted to learn about Shakespeare because she was a theater lover. But I would imagine that she had some pretty urgent political issues on her mind too. I wonder what she was doing at Stratford. And you know, this uh, you talked earlier about somebody having a great thesis to pursue. I would love for somebody to research this event in greater detail and see if anything I've said here might be right. I certainly hope someone chases that historical rabbit and report back to me. I want to know too. Yes. Now, are there any examples of country house entertainments that show up in Shakespeare's plays? And you mentioned that probably had Shakespeare been alive, he would have been involved there at Susanna's hosting of Henrietta Maria, I would assume. But I wonder if he would have attended any during his lifetime. Is that something someone like Shakespeare would have gone to? Yeah, I think it's certainly possible. So I've read other people speculating that maybe Shakespeare went to the Kenilworth Entertainment himself. He would have, Shakespeare would have been 11 and he lived not terribly far from there. The Kenilworth Entertainment was certainly an enormous event that drew large crowds, not all of them elite people, but commoners in the area as well. And so, yeah, it's possible that Shakespeare was there, but there's no evidence that he was. I couldn't find anything that linked Shakespeare directly to Kenilworth. So I can't say that. 
But I do think it's very, very likely that Shakespeare knew about these entertainments. And one way he could have known about them is by reading about them. So I studied 17 country house entertainments that I could find that had surviving texts. And of those texts, 11 of them were printed. Most of them were printed in London and they were sold in London bookshops. Sometimes the same shops that would later sell Shakespeare's plays in a few years. Um, these, these books of country house entertainments served as news for people who couldn't be there. And they also served as literature, you know, kind of as, as drama, printed drama. And some of these entertainment books were popular enough to be reprinted. So somebody must have been buying them. And I think it's very likely that Shakespeare encountered some of these entertainments in print. He also might have heard about them from his fellow actors later, because most of the entertainments involved some hired professional players performing some of the roles. I already mentioned that some people in the household did that, but they also had professional actors too. So it's not too much of a stretch to imagine sometimes Shakespeare would have heard stories about what it was like to perform in these entertainments. It seems like there are a lot of connections there for Shakespeare, either people in his playing company or certainly colleagues that he was with. That was a part of the industry that he would have would have known about and been connected to, even if he wasn't involved personally. Absolutely. I think that these, I believe strongly that these country house entertainments were really important in their day and that they were cultural events people would have heard about, even if they weren't there in person. You also asked in your question whether there are any examples within Shakespeare's plays. And I can cite a few moments when I think Shakespeare is alluding to country house entertainments. So in Midsummer Night's Dream, the character Oberon has a line about riding a dolphin's back. And this seems to refer to a specific moment in a water pageant when an actor sang on a dolphin's back, uh, probably at the Kenilworth Entertainment, but possibly at the Eltham Entertainment in 1591. Uh, in Love's Labor's Lost, there's a scene where the princess and her ladies are hunting, and it seems to me to recall the queen's progresses. And then in The Merry Wives of Windsor, the play ends with a kind of country house entertainment planned by women, performed in part by women, and featuring imagery that was central to country house entertainment at the end of Elizabeth's reign, like fairies and the fairy queen. And that fairy imagery is all over Midsummer Night's Dream, too. So I think there was a lot of crosstalk between the country house entertainments, and Shakespeare's Elizabethan plays. I know we would love to dive into the history of country house entertainments further and explore some of these rabbit trails that we've mentioned during our conversation today. And as the resident expert on country house entertainments, please point us in the right direction. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use if we're new to this idea and we want to explore it further? Sure. So if you'd like to know more about the history of Elizabeth's progresses, then I strongly recommend a book by Mary Hill Cole called The Portable Queen. This is uh, She's a historian and it's an academic book all about Elizabeth's progresses. It was incredibly useful to me as I wrote my book. Uh, and it's also very readable, so you don't have to be an academic to enjoy it. If you'd like to read some country house entertainments for yourself, and I do have to warn you, they're not as good or as fun to read as Shakespeare's plays, but they're extremely interesting. So I would direct you to a book called John Nichols, The Progresses and Public Processions of Elizabeth, a new edition of the Early Modern Sources. It came out in 2014 and it is based on an 18th century source. It's a very expensive five-volume set 
maybe you could find it at your library. And I think volume two is especially useful for reading the kinds of entertainments I study. If you'd like to know more about one of the women behind the country house entertainment, then I recommend Vanessa Wilkie's book, A Woman of Influence, The Spectacular Rise of Alice Spencer in Tudor England. Alice Spencer, later known as Stanley, later known as Edgerton, and also called the Countess of Derby. She's the one who hosted with her husband, the Harefield Entertainment in 1602. Vanessa Wilkie's book is really good. It's a biography written for a popular audience. The Countess of Derby had a really fascinating life. So I would recommend that. And then finally, if you are able, the very best way to imagine what these events were like is to visit an English country house. I would recommend Kenilworth Castle or Sudley Castle because both of them have ruins that date to the Elizabethan period. And in both cases, you can actually see the landscape where these performances would have been staged, uh, which was super exciting to me when I was researching my book. And um, so like, when else do you get to see that? If you can't get yourself to England, then you can also learn a lot about these houses and their histories by visiting their websites or looking at pictures of them online too. We are hugely supportive of libraries here at That Shakespeare Life who support and make possible all the exploring through time that we enjoy doing to learn more about Shakespeare. So I'm thrilled to provide links to these books, both the ones you would like to purchase for yourself and the one it might be best to go and spend some time in a library exploring, all in the show notes for today's episode. And travel is always a great way to explore history and really get to see the remaining parts of history that are alive and there for you to look at. And we are connected with several history tour groups here at That Shakespeare Life. So I'll be glad to place you some links where you can go and see Kenilworth Castle and Sudley Castle in the show notes as well. So make sure you stay tuned for the link to find those. Now, Elizabeth, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I think if I were stuck on an island, I would want something that I could read over and over. And for me, that's often poetry. So I think I would choose Devotions, the Selected Poems of Mary Oliver. I love Oliver's poetry. She's one of my favorite modern poets. And her poems also celebrate nature, which seems like a good thing to be reading if I'm on a deserted island. Maybe it would encourage me to appreciate the nature around me. I think you were the first guest I've had that felt gratitude and appreciation was going to be important for their desert island stay. And I think that's just a beautiful perspective. Excellent choice. Well, thank you. Maybe I'm just overly optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) You can't be too optimistic. (laughs) Now, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm writing a new book, and this time it's about Shakespeare, and it's about the ways that he represented court pageantry in his plays. So I already mentioned that he alludes to some country house entertainment, but his plays spend a lot more time thinking about another form of royal performance that was especially popular under Elizabeth's successor, James, and that was the court mask. So that's what my book is about, masks in Shakespeare. And as I've been studying masks in plays like Romeo and Juliet and also The Tempest, I've become really interested in how people have used these scenes, their afterlives. And that's because masks are masks are pretty weird. They're mostly about dance and movement. But when Shakespeare puts them in his plays, he doesn't offer very robust stage directions. So they're kind of barely scripted. And they offer these kind of blank moments to a certain extent where modern directors and editors need to explain to audiences what are ha- what's happening or they can do something themselves. 
And so there's all sorts of substitutions from the 18th century to the present, like opera, ballet, striptease, country line dancing. You know, like, what do you do with a mask when an audience doesn't know what a mask is anymore? So what I found so far is that these moments are always about identity. So I've been thinking about how editors and directors use them to highlight issues relating to gender, race, and social class. So anyway, more to come. If you end up exploring Romeo and Juliet further, report back to us if you discover anything on those Montagues and Tybalt's in the country house entertainments. My brain is still spinning about that one. I will do so. Elizabeth Kolkovich, thank you so much for being here today and taking us through the history of what country house entertainments are and how understanding them helps us understand Shakespeare just a little bit better. This has been a fun conversation and I thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much. I had a lot of fun too. I have gathered up visuals and artifacts to go along with our conversation today, including images of country house estates like Kenilworth Castle and other locations for you to explore. You'll find these extra history tidbits and direct links to the recommended reading and research resources we talk about in today's episode, all in the show notes located at CassidyCash.com slash episode 298. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 298. If you'd like to dive even deeper into the life of William Shakespeare to try out some of the history from turn of the 17th century England with activities you can do at home, like making your own 16th century Tudor soap balls, learning how to make iron gall ink, or playing the card game Naughty, which shows up in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona, then consider becoming a member at That Shakespeare Life. Members of Experience Shakespeare get access to a library of hands-on history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Each kit comes with a video tutorial, supply list, and step-by-step instructions. Plus, each kit coordinates with both Shakespeare's plays and specific episodes of our show, making it easy to add the activities right into your classroom lesson plan or home study about Shakespeare history. Experience Shakespeare is a great way to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Learn more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. Patrons of That Shakespeare Life get 40% off membership to Experience Shakespeare, along with insider access to over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms. Patrons get to suggest topic ideas, see sneak peeks of upcoming guests, and have the opportunity to submit their own questions they'd like to be asked during an interview. If you enjoy learning history here with us each week and want to play a direct role in supporting the work we do here on That Shakespeare Life, then you can sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash thatshakespeare. Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.